Genesis chapter 27. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother's a hairy man, and, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Get them for me. And he went and he got them and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and he said, <clears throat> my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, uh, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near me, that I, and I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near, and he kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing, and he blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. 
Now it happened. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I'm, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly, and he said, Who? Where is the one who, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with the seat and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother when it shall come to pass, and it shall come to pass when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban at Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, till your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your, father's, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham uh, to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. 
So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Patanaram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed. Behold, a ladder was set up upon the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Father, we ask that you help us to understand the truths of these two chapters coupled together today. Speak to us through your holy, inerrant, infallible word. May your spirit move in our hearts to have understanding. And Lord, may we have application of these truths in a way that would honor you, our King and Savior. In his name we pray. God's people said, amen. I've entitled this message, Faltering Faith, Faithful Father. In fact, as I look at these passages together, chapters 27 and 28, I would say that the major theme or the simple thematic truth that these two opposites uh, or comparatives coupled together is this. God's faithful grace overcomes man's sin. As we look at Genesis 27, 1 to 28, 22, we find... Uh, an incredible contrast. In fact, last week we set the stage for chapters 27 and 28. As we set the stage for chapters 27 and 28, our characters Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob 
sowed the seeds of sin in chapters 25 and 26 that we will see will reap a harvest of hurt in their lives. We noted last time that Isaac's maturing character was on display in chapter 26, which culminated in his partnership with God in prayer for his wife to conceive in chapter 25. We understand that this wonderful positive event in Isaac's life now is overshadowed by the character flaws that we've seen intrinsically develop. The failure of complacency and pride on Isaac and Rebekah's behalf let, led them to their own devices. Chapter 27 and 28 will highlight the fruit of their pride and willfulness that led them to, to live lives wanting God's blessing, but wanting it in their own way. The family favoritism that's displayed in chapter 26 is in full bloom in chapter 27. And it will plague Isaac and Rebekah's family for the rest of their stories and the rest of their son's stories. We ended last week noting the positive response of Rebekah that led her to the need, like us, to live in God's presence in a way that glorifies him to the world. Jacob and Esau's struggle that was kernelized in chapter 25 will be expanded on in chapter 27, and it shares the overarching truth that they need to trust in God's providential promise through living in God's presence. Although Jacob chose wisely and secured his future for the better, Esau chose poorly and secured his future for the worse. The narrative of chapters 27 and 28 will show us that none of our characters were sinless in this process. So last week, we were challenged to note that God expects every believer to live in light of his presence in a way that glorifies him in the world. Today, we will note that God's promises are not secured through our manipulation or our stubbornness or our disobedience or our disagreeableness. The four characters of chapter 27 give way to two characters in chapter 28. Did you see that? In fact, the main highlight in chapter 28 is on the one who is faithful. There's a ladder that extends to that one's presence. The narrative drives our gaze away from our sin and its bitter consequences of despair and destruction and towards the one who faithfully pours out his lavish grace. Today, we will see two contrasting stories in our chapters. The first story shows the ugliness that comes from, from faltering faith. That's chapter 27, 1 to 46. And it's unavoidable consequences. The next story reviews our faithful father, chapter 28, verses 1 to 22, who covers us with his love and grace despite our faltering faith. So today we will see that although the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and revel in God's grace. Though the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and we can revel in God's grace. As we look back here this morning, we're going to ask and answer this question today. How does the narrative Highlight the need for us to eschew. That's a fancy word that means hate. How does the narrative highlight the need to hate the sins of pride and complacency? 
and to trust in God's faithfulness to his promise by reveling in his grace? And that is an, an excellent question that we must answer. And when we, when we look today, uh, we're going to see two contrasting stories in our two chapters. The first story shows the ugliness that comes from faltering faith. The next story reviews our faithful father. And so let's talk about the faltering faith that we see in chapter 27, 1 to 46. Now, first, I want to capture attention for just a moment because I know you just listened to a long monologue of introduction that hopefully kernelized carefully, that was my intention, what led up to this point. But think with me mentally, sort of mentally track where we've been. The, the overall theme of Genesis, sin destroys, God delivers. God's deliverance comes through a seed that will crush the serpent's head, yet his heel will be bruised. That seed will be a human deliverer who will have to substitute himself in the place of the sinner. We understand that now. That seed has now been directed through the Toledos, through the generations of, into the life and legacy of one named Abram, who was renamed Abraham. He becomes the first generation to then see this seed sort of expand and receive this blessing of, I will make your descendants greater than the stars of the heavens, the sand and the seashore, and I will bless them, and in them, through them, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And we've already seen how Abram, turning Abraham, and Sarah, his beautiful princess, how they display incredible faith and trust in God's promise, even to the point of waiting for the blessing till they're a hundred and 90, 90 for Sarah, 100 for Abraham, to actually have a physical son that they name, irony of all ironies, laughter. And so when laughter arises on the scene, uh, you know, into his late teens, maybe early 20s, God once again comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, uh, so go do it immediately. And we see that narrative uh, tension there where Abraham has to then act on his faith in God in such a way that demonstrates he's willing to lay on the altar that which is most precious to him. And in fact, Isaac, laughter in his mind, is the one and only means by which God is going to fulfill his promise. So in essence, Abraham has to give up the promise to receive the promise. But Isaac was a participant here as well. We noted that uh, Abraham was, was near 120, somewhere between 120 and 122 years old when he walks to the top of Mount Moriah to offer his son Isaac on the altar. Therefore, Isaac was between 18 and 22 years old, easily able to overpower his ancient father, but instead he yields himself showcasing the New Testament require, requirement that we place ourselves on the altar, that the generation before us that walked by God in faith then passes the baton to the generation after us and says, walk with God by faith. So Isaac lays his life on the altar, trusting that God is able to raise him up. Abraham trusted God was able to raise him up. Isaac trusted that God was able to raise him up. 
You say, well, preacher, we know all this. Why is this so important? We just spent a ton of time reading chapters 27 and 28. And why, why are we talking about this? Because now in our story, Isaac's an old man. Isaac can't hear very well. He can't see very well. He doesn't know when the end of his days are going to be. By the way, Isaac lives quite a bit longer. We find out Isaac uh, um, you know, outlasted his expectation. But what we find here is the baton went from generation one to generation two. Though generation two successfully re received the baton, started well, my question is, how well did generation two receive the baton of faith and then pass it on to the generation three? And the point I think that we see from the text is it wasn't until God had to shake Isaac at his core. And the story tells us there was a visible, physical trembling and fear because Isaac had now been living in his latter years in absolute total and complete disobedience to God's command. You say, where do you see that, preacher? Well, we read in chapters 26 and 25 that Isaac's faith, the faith that brought him to Moriah, brought him down from Moriah, allowed him to inherit uh, the family blessing. At 40 years old, he's a meditator in the field. He's been waiting for two years to receive his bride. He receives his bride. Uh, there's so much blessing, and it seems to be going really well. He prays for conception. Uh, his wife conceives. Of course, all this happens after the problem with Abimelech. And during the time of famine, God blesses them, and seven wells of water get opened up. When there's no water in the land, God is blessing him and his posterity. Why? Because he obeyed God. So there's an active obedience in Isaac's part. But here's what happens when he prays, God, bless me, bless my wife, open her womb, help her to conceive, and God indeed blesses her and gives her twins. And God speaks to Rebecca. And he says, the older will serve the younger. This is where life derails in Isaac's mind. In fact, we, the stage has been set for us, if you recall chapter 25. Chapter 25 essentially ends highlighting Isaac loved Esau, for he liked to eat of his savory meat. Rebecca loved Jacob. We have a level of complacency and human, uh, human, uh, human complacency that leads to pride and manipulation and deception. And that, that uh, leads to destruction in the life of Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. And here's the, here's the point. The second generation in this text is a generation that attempts to, to take God's promises their way instead of God's way. Now, we don't know what happens in the intervening years, but we do know that the stage has been set for favoritism. We do know that favoritism is obvious and blunt. We do know that Esau, as we learned last time, we know that Esau becomes a profane man who uh, disregards the promises of God. He takes for granted the promises of God. Um, he disdains the counsel of his mother and father until it's too late. In fact, here it was said in juxtaposition, we already know that 
his mom and dad didn't want him to take wives of Heth or the Hittites, not one, much less two. And, and he doesn't even do anything about it until after he's lost the blessing, after he's given away his birthright, and after he's lost the blessing. And then what does he do? He adds to his sin of profanity and uh, self-centeredness and instant gratification and fornication by adding a third wife to the list of wives. This is polygamy at its worst. This is disobedience and self-centeredness at its worst. And so what we find here in this chapter is that faltering faith must be overcome by God's faithful grace. And even though the second generation is a generation of blessing, they suffer the consequences from poor decisions. Can I put it this way? As we look backward from the, this perspective of thousands of years removed from Jacob and Esau, from Isaac and Rebekah, as we sit here in this beautiful place that God has provided for us, as we think about the concepts of what it means to live for Christ, to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourself in fulfillment to all the law and the prophets, as we look backward on the lives of Isaac, Esau and Jacob, I wonder if we're not like Isaac and Rebekah. I wonder if we're not like Jacob. And in fact, I think that the message that we have for today is in identifying with the sins of Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau in such a way to shake us into reality that we must not have a faltering faith in God's provision or promises, but we must rather trust in our faithful Father who always makes a way for us to succeed. So the truth that we have and we're going to see is although the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and we can revel in God's grace. We can trust in God's faithfulness and we can revel in God's grace. And so as we look here now, um, I want to show, I want, well, I'll go back because I'm going to give that in way of application in a moment. I want to see chapter 27 then highlights very real people and very real life, does it not? This is the day in, day out life now of Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. This story in all of its wonder provides a story in which everyone has sinned. No one looks good. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, they all kind of have egg on their face here, don't they? The patriarch Isaac fought against God's word. The matriarch Rebekah, through her favorite son, attempts to manipulate life so as to ensure that God's promise would actually happen. She and Jacob thought that God needed help. Even if, he, his, even if the help was dishonest and self-serving, Esau, the patriarch's favorite son, disregards God's word. Indeed, he, he despises the promise. Everyone here is lost. Rebecca was forced to send her pet son to far-off Mesopotamia, away from her father's house, in a destitute condition. In fact, we find Jacob. Who's Jacob with in chapter 27? Nobody. 
Now, obviously, the main character, chapter 27, is God. God shows up. This reminds us, believer, that God will never leave or forsake us. In fact, we're going to talk about chapter 27, uh, or chapter 28, um, secondly, today, in, in way of conclusion, I'm going to highlight uh, what Bethel meant and what uh, this, this gate of heaven and this ladder to heaven and, and what this looks like, what it symbolizes, and what, uh, what its New Testament counterpart is in a moment. But before I do, we want to recognize that nobody in the story, not Isaac, not Jacob, excuse me, not Isaac, not Rebecca, not Jacob, not Esau, not one of them are sinless. Every one of them have their tendrils of manipulation. None of them say, you know what, I'm going to believe God. And it will be accredited to me for righteousness. Rebecca doesn't stop and say, hey, Isaac, remember what God promised at the birth of your boys? Jacob is supposed to receive the blessing. Don't go bless Esau. I overheard your conversation, my loving husband, and let me tell you, you're going to put yourself in grave danger if you dishonor and disobey God's command to bless your younger son. She doesn't go to him and say that. Instead, she goes to her younger son. In her mind, she's thinking, well, God needs my help because my husband is sinning. And instead of going to God for help and then to her husband to encourage and confront him, she goes to her son and she says multiple times, I hope you noticed it, obey my voice. Listen to what I'm saying. Obey my voice. Now, okay, can I say this, ladies? If there's anybody right in this story, it's Rebecca. I'm not making Rebecca the enemy here, okay? In fact, Rebecca is probably the one that's holding the family together. She is the glue that is connected to the promise here. She believed when God said the younger will serve the older. Just because she preferred Jacob doesn't mean she didn't love Esau. Are you tracking with me? But Rebecca's process was a process that bypassed her faith in God and went to say, well, God needs my help to make this work. And her idea wasn't necessarily a bad one in the sense that, um, you know, from one perspective, her deaf and blind husband probably could be tricked into thinking that one of his sons was the other. But we're, we understand when we see the narrative that actually he still has his sniffer. And now, instead of going to God and to her husband and appealing to her husband and then leading up to the Lord to convict her husband, she goes to her son, and honestly, her son is complicit in this sin. Now, does he have an excuse? Can he say, hey, God, I was honoring father and mother? Children, obey your, parents in the, or obey your parents in the Lord. I obeyed my wife. I mean, my mom. <laughs> Sorry. I obeyed my mom, right? Did he not? He even, he even throws out there, hey, mom, um, what if he catches this deception? But notice when he throws out there, what if he catches my uh, deception? Instead of appealing to the glory and the promise of God, he appeals to his own problem. He says, if he figures it out, God might curse me. All he's thinking about is himself. Jacob is not a rose in this either. And in fact, Jacob lies three times. Three times in this scenario, Jacob is forced to lie. Yes, his mother put him in a place 
where he had to lie to God. But this broke, this, this, this broke down way before Jacob uh, goes into the, his father's presence. And we even notice in the narrative, his dad isn't really feeling super deceived. And there might be even a spot here where Isaac is realizing, um, I'm, I'm walking in disobedience to God. Maybe it was when he says, um, who are you, my son? Um, you sound like Jacob. Come, come, come here, son. Let, let me feel your hands. Well, you feel like Esau. Um, let me eat. I'll, I'll eat. I'll have time to think about it. Oh, man, this is savory food, just like Esau makes. Oh, this is really good. Let me drink the wine. Oh, wow. My son, man, he can really set aside a, 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 a good wine. You know, this one is, has been well seasoned. Uh, this meal is really delicious. And boy, did he pair these two well. Uh, you know, Mr. Isaac, who has spent his life appealing to his flesh, who has hardened his heart toward God's promise and has refused to obey God to bless the younger over the elder, decided in his heart, I'm going to have Esau here and I'm going to bless Esau because I don't know when I might die, but I want to bless Esau in disobedience to God before I do. And finally, in his heart's conviction, he goes a third time and he says, um, come here, son, let me thank you for the meal. And he smells like Esau too. Don't be deceived. Isaac was disobeying God. Rebekah was disobeying God. Jacob lied about who he was and was disobeying God. Esau, we're already told from chapter 25, Esau is a profane man. Esau has eschewed or hated his birthright. He sold it for a pot of red bean stew. Esau hates God's promise. This second generation, can I say this? Maybe you're a young person. Maybe you are a second generation believer. Don't be like Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. Don't have a faltering faith that says, God needs my help. I need to manipulate my circumstances for God to get this right. No, trust God in his promises. Because sin destroys, but God delivers. How much different might this have been if Isaac had just led his family and Rebecca had led her family in connection and solidarity with her husband to say, I don't understand God's unique wisdom here. I don't know why the younger is to be blessed over the older, but we're going to obey God and do it. How much different would it have been if they had a family that didn't show favoritism? If they had a family who, who the wife loved God enough to confront her husband in a loving and passionate way and then trust God, put him out there on the end of the branch and let God saw it off. Right? Instead of coming alongside and say, you know what, God, you need a chainsaw. I'm the chainsaw. You see, this whole story is a story of failure, a story of total failure, of faltering faith. In and above this, something of immense beauty, though, and grandeur. The invincible determination of God to keep his word, despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. God fulfilled his word despite Isaac's opposition, despite 
Rebecca and Jacob's manipulation and despite Esau's indifference. The invincible determination of God will see to it that his people are sanctified. Here the figurative earthquake in Isaac's life called him back to a life of faith. And Jacob was further pushed along the path that result in becoming Israel, a prince of God. Fellow believers, amidst our sins and our stupidities, the invincible determination of God is set to bring us to completion even when we resist it. The truth was given memorable voice in Paul's advice to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now let's look at this New Testament truth for just one second. Paul to Timothy, the master of Judaism, the Benjamite of Benjamites, the rabbi of his days, sat at the seat of Gamaliel. Uh, he writes a proverbial promise here with beautiful, though he wrote it in Greek, Hebrew poetic symmetry. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Do you see the parallels? If then, if then, if then. But what's happened, what happens at the end? If we are faithless, what, what should this couplet be? He will also be faithless. Is that what it says? He remains faithful. Why does he remain faithful when we're faithless? Because he cannot deny himself. What is the point of faltering faith? Friends, it is possible for you and I to be in the faith, that is to have total and complete dependence of God on God for our salvation, but then to forget in our day-to-day -day living for God that the same God who set, set us apart for him, who justified us, who declared us to be righteous in his son, who's already done what is necessary for our eternal security, that same God who secures us and will present, present us faultless before the throne of God and will uh, raise us up in the last day to be kings and priests with him, to rule and reign with him for a thousand years and for all eternity to be blessed in his eternal presence, that same God can also sustain you. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your circumstantial manipulation. He doesn't need you to harden your heart against his word and in disobedience say, hey God, I need happiness and satisfaction on this earth. If I just had a better job, if I just had a nicer car, if I just were in a better circumstance, if you would just make my life better, I would serve you better. Isaac and Rebecca lived a life where they just accepted God by faith, but then lived as if they had to do it all themselves. They had a faltering faith. And it really decimated their family. One commentator put, the, put it this way, R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis says this, God cannot and will not be anything but faithful to the unfaithful children. God will be faithful to his word and to his own, even when they manipulate and fight against his will. And more, his word will prevail. Believer, are you playing games with God's word? Are you attempting to control its application? 
Are you engaging in unrighteous means to bring about its righteous end? Are you fighting against his word? If so, stop it. Say with your Savior, will be done, your will be done. Yield to his invincible determination to fulfill his word. Rest in this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Friends, the context and the text of this passage is so clear. Isaac was the chosen seed. Jacob was meant to be the chosen seed. Isaac and Rebekah didn't need to manipulate their circumstances to receive the blessing of God on their family or for their sons. God is able because he is faithful and he cannot deny himself. And so as we look at the second point here, we see the faithful father. But Jacob was, uh, what we see here in this, in this text as we've read the entire story, we notice the, 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 the major pinnacle of this story starts when Jacob gets summoned by his mom. He says, hey, listen, I want you to marry a Canaanite. Again, his mom comes to him and says, obey my voice. And the story then opens, it ends in chapter 27 with Rebekah talking to Isaac. And then it opens in chapter 28, and what does Isaac say? Isaac says, Rebekah's right. Go find a wife in, in uh, Padanaram. And so, again, the, the human machinations behind the scenes to manipulate and, and twist what's happening. Now, there's no mention of Rebecca anywhere further into this story. You know what that means? It, it, it shows me the absence of silence. Isaac gets sent. 20 years he spends in Padanaram. He never sees his mother again. His mother never sees her beloved son again. You know what? Sin has consequences, friend. And though God remains faithful, when we choose to interject our will and overlap our will onto God's plan, we will suffer the consequences. God lets the consequences come to full fruition. And they're nasty. They're hard. Rebecca never sees her, her loving son again. And so... What is highlighted then is a faithful father. Jacob was summoned his command. He was commanded not to marry Canaanite. He was instead told to tread the long journey to Padanaram and marry a cousin. What we find here is an opening blessing. Isaac blesses Jacob. Now I mentioned a moment ago that Isaac trembles in, 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 when he realizes the deception. He's confronted by Esau and he realizes the deception. This is perhaps that moment when he physically reacts to the reality, I have had my face hardened against God's will. I have been determined to do what I want instead of what God wants, and God gets a hold of Isaac, and he's trembling here. Now what we find is Isaac claims the truth. I've already blessed Jacob. And then he goes on, and this harkens, these verses three and following harken back to the, the blessing, the promise that God had already given to Abraham. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. See, Isaac comes to the realization that despite 
his hardness of heart, despite his uh, decision to reject God's plan for Jacob, God has blessed Jacob anyway, and he needs to get, get with the program. Now, uh, Esau sees this in verse 6. Uh, he does too little too late. In fact, um, if you want, I, I don't have time to hover here, but it would be a good idea for you to see it from with your own eyes instead of just hear it from my mouth. If you want to turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 13, you can find um, very clearly what God says about Esau. Excuse me, chapter 12. Oh, I can't find it now. Why can't I find it? I lost it. Oh, there we go. Uh, chapter 12, verse um, 15. Or that's just back up to verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. This is the context of New Testament chastening of the Lord and how we're supposed to respond. He says, pursue peace with all peoples and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this Many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What he wanted was he wanted, he wanted God's blessing his way. And he goes about that the rest of his life, though he... He seeks God's blessing, and he even cries about not getting God's blessing. He's not really repentant about what he's done wrong. He's not really turned to God. He's defined as a fornicator and a profane man whose life is typified by bitterness. So God blesses Jacob. All hopes of Esau's elevation were now out of the picture. Parenthetically, the account tells us that Esau saw all of this. Perhaps he'd been watching in unseen malevolence. And then when Esau perceived that his Hittite wives were unpleasing to his father, he decides to marry a cousin, a daughter of Isaac's half-brother Ishmael. This immoral man gets what he deserves. And so here we must remember that while it's true that neither Jacob nor Esau had acted well anywhere in the narrative, there was a polar difference between the two. Esau had only a surface interest in the promise and was faithless. But Jacob believed in God's word and treasured the promise. Yet his faith was incomplete because he did not believe that the promise would be, would be his apart from his own self-directed actions. As a result, the next 20 years were going to be necessarily hard on him. Notice uh, he makes a covenant, covenant promise. God makes a covenant promise with him. And you have this, uh, this ladder okay, that shows up in his dream. I'm going to talk about that here in conclusion in a minute. Okay? Um, and then you have Jacob responding to this in, um, Jacob responds to this in fear, worship, and making a vow, okay? Um, by the way, when does Jacob see this? Is he fleeing to God? No, he's fleeing from the land of promise. In fact, his grandfather, Abraham, had specifically told his unnamed servant, do not send my son to Mesopotamia. Go yourself and bring a, a wife back but Rebekah says, go, my son, to Mesopotamia. And Jacob's uh, exit from the promised land and his, the vacuum of his loss 
leaves Esau and his carnality to abound in the land while Jacob is nowhere to be found for 20 plus years. Now Jacob, in spite of his sin or despite his sin, God shows up to him. This, my friends, is the picture of the faithful father. This, my friends, is the picture of God bestowing grace where grace is not deserved or, or earned. God gives grace to Jacob. And he says, hey, Jacob, you're alone. You're lonely. You're going without family to a place that you don't belong, but I will be with you. I will bless you. And here comes the very promise that God will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise holds true through the rest of the Bible and the rest of the story. By the way, Daniel, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment, Daniel's 70th week is for the purpose of the restoration of the lost house of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. True Israel, not fake statist, elitist Israel that rejects Messiah, but true Israel, Israel indeed. And so Jacob responds to God in fear and worship. Jacob has this dream. He rises up from his pillow. He realizes the Lord is in his place. He's in the place. He's astounded in verse 16 uh, because like the rest of us, we naturally forget that God is present when we're in trouble, especially when it's our own fault. I want you to see this beauty here. How many of you, uh, let's be honest this morning. I'm almost done. Let's be honest here. How many of you would say, I have on many occasions woken up and realized I am in a world of trouble, my own making. I'm going to raise two hands to that. I have. There have been times in my life where I realized the decisions I made were stupid, and I have made my bed, and now I'm laying down in it. This is where Jacob is. And God would be fully and completely justified in saying, you know what? I'm going to start over. Jacob, you're not the guy. But he doesn't. In his mercy and grace, he comes to Jacob and he appears to him. When his faith had faltered, God is faithful. When he needs father and mother because he's forsaken father, mother, houses, and land, he's fleeing for his life from his his uh, murderous, the murderous intentions of his brother. He feels alone in a desolate place called Luz, which ends up being renamed Bethel. He finds that God is a faithful father. God speaks from heaven and says, I will be your father. I will be your God. And so it is with us. God will never leave or forsake you. Believer, no matter how much sin has destroyed your life, God will never leave or forsake you. No matter how hard the consequences of your bad decisions might, might feel at the time, God has not abandoned you. You are his promised child. He loves you tenaciously, and he will not give up on you. Don't give up on him. Jacob responds with this vow. He's a piece of work, isn't he? He's a work in progress. He's got a long way to go. His amazed declaration remains immortal. He designates this place as the house of God and the gate of heaven. He anoints the stone pillow. It was a true act of worship. But notice what his vow says. You remember what he says? If God does this, then I will do this. He's not quite there yet. He's still at that spot where sometimes we do 
You ever, have you ever been in bargaining mode with God? God, I'm in a bad spot. I know I deserve to be in this bad spot because I've made bad decisions. But there's more. If you would just do this, I promise I'll do this. No, what, what do we need to do? What did Jacob need to do? I messed up, God. I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this. Here's the reins of my life. They belong to you. Jacob's not there yet. He's got a 20-year journey, and he himself is going to get manipulated quite a bit by his father-in-law, Laban. He's going to make some really stupid choices as it relates to women in his life. He's going to show favoritism like he was brought up in a household that showed favoritism, and he's going to repeat the problem. And it is going to leave a wake of destruction. But guess what? He has a faithful father. And so I want to close with this reality. In John 1, 51, and, and I want to liken this ladder, who we see, uh, this ladder in heaven, we see God on the throne room of heaven. And who is going up and down the ladder? None but God's messengers from earth to heaven. John 1.51 says, Jesus says to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In fact, Jacob is a type of the Son of Man here. Jacob sees he is a son of promise. He is the final seed in the triple echelon of Abraham and Isaac. He is Jacob, the one who received the promise. He is a type of the Son of Man, a flawed type to be sure, because the true Son of Man who would come, who has come already, was the sinless, perfect Son of God. By the way, the title Son of Man is used 82 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it 81 times of those 82 times to define himself. Where does the Son of Man show up? Well, it shows up in Daniel chapter 7. Then to him who has given, given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the one who enters the throne room of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, and his dominion will be everlasting. Jacob gets to see a vision uh, of God enthroned in his throne room and of angels responding to his glory, going up and down this ladder from heaven to earth, doing God's bidding. In one, in one simple essence, Jacob is a type of Christ here, even though Christ, of course, is perfect. And what we find here then is the glory that the, that the ascended Son of Man mediates the commerce between heaven and earth. As Paul would say, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ is the one at the top of the ladder. Jesus Christ is the one that is Lord of your life, my friend. Jacob, who has a faithful father, needs to be reminded that God will never leave or forsake him. Perhaps you are today saying, well, my life is a mess. You, my friend, need to be reminded you've got a faithful father. He is there at all times, in all places. Jacob thinks that Bethel is the special place where heaven's door is open and it's the gate of heaven. But quite frankly, the, the earth is God's footstool and the heavens are his throne. There is no one place that God is. He is everywhere and he is especially with his special people. 
And so, friends, there is nowhere, as David would say in the Psalms, he would say, where should I go from your presence? If I ascend up into the heavens, behold, you're there. If I made my bed in Sheol, even there your right hand would hold me. You see, friends, God owns everything and he is everywhere and God wants to be the master of your life. Don't have a faltering faith like Jacob. Even the old Bethel, the house of God, has been superseded. It is no longer in Bethel where God reveals himself. The temple is likewise obsolete because Jesus is the temple. And believers, there is nowhere we can go where he does not mediate commerce between heaven and earth for us. His promise to us stands. He keeps his word. Everywhere we go is the house of God and the gate of heaven. Furthermore, he, God, is at work to conform us to himself, and we can be sure that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Friends, although the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness. We can revel in God's grace. Now, you may be insulted when I suggest that we are all Jacobs. But if you are, you simply do not know yourself or, the, or your Bible. You see, friends, we are all people who often find ourselves in flight because of our sins. We are all people who then imagine that God is not with us because of our sin. But the reality is that there is a ladder that extends between heaven and earth for us, and the one who controls that ladder from top to bottom is the Lord himself. Astonishingly, he sends his angels to us as ministering spirits. He directs our lives. He finds us in our solitary desolation and he ministers to us. Why? Because he is the God of grace and he is not done with us. Truly, he will not be done with us in this life. We need to take these stupendous truths to heart. Our inner eye must perpetually behold the vision of the angel-freighted ladder superintended by the awesome Son of Man who directs heaven's traffic for our sanctification and our glory, his glory. Friends, although the consequences of your sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and we can revel in God's grace. Don't quit. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. Let us trust in our faithful God. Let us not be like Jacob who flees and complains about his aloneness. Let us remember Jesus will never leave or forsake us. He's there with us in the gutter when we fail him. He's there lifting us out of the trench when we're running from him. He found Jonah in the belly of the whale. He is there, my friends, and he is there for you now.